Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Well, do keep your Bibles open. I'm going to get mine. We're going to be spending some time there in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 and a little bit in other parts of the Bible as well. Let me add my welcome to that of Rachel. It's great to have you here with us. I tell you what, at uh, half past 10, I didn't know anyone was going to be in here. I thought it had been rained off, but um, good to see some students back. Hi. And uh, just caught sight of you. Um, Let me find my sermon. The Green Cross Code was a road safety campaign that began in 1970, and it continues, I think, even today. A series of TV films were released in the mid-70s, some of you may remember them, featuring a superhero called the Green Cross Man. Now, in these films, the Green Cross Man has the power to teleport from his monitoring station, Green Cross Control, to any location in the country where children are in need of pedestrian safety instruction. Now, on these missions, and let's see some people from, who were brought up in the 70s can remember it. On these missions, he's sometimes accompanied by a whimsical robot companion. And the slogan is, I won't be there when you cross the road, so always use the Green Cross Code. And the Green Cross Code gave a simple expression to a command that parents always give their children. Stop, look, listen, and think when you come to the edge of the road. Stop, look, both ways. Listen for the cars and think. And last year, the Guardian newspaper reported that the annual figure for child deaths and serious injuries in this country had risen for the first time in 20 years on the roads to over 1,700 deaths in a 12-month period. It had risen. If someone is hit by a car traveling at 40 miles an hour, they are 90% likely to be killed. Three weeks ago, a group of children were playing out in our street in Withington, and a young man drove into the street going way too fast. One of the mothers approached him when he got out of his car and asked him if in future he would slow down. And he replied, relax, everyone dies sometime, and walked away. So you can imagine what the atmosphere was like among the mothers in our street. Now, my wife and I have got four boys and a girl. And let me tell you a simple command that we have given every single one of our children as soon as they were able to understand it. And we've repeated it many, many times. It's this. When you get to the edge of the road, stop and look both ways, even if there's no traffic. When you press that button on the zebra crossing, you wait till the man goes green. And now, after 16 years of drilling this into children, you know what, if I'm on my own, and I come to the side of a road, and there's nobody there, and no cars for about two miles in either direction, I still stop and look both ways. And I always wait for the green man. It's been dr- I've drilled it into myself. And let me say, we have been completely and unapologetically strict about this. We don't negotiate with children or terrorists. Young children don't get to choose whether they keep this command or not. They will keep it. We don't expect them to keep this command 90% of the time. We expect them to keep it 100% of the time. 
We insist on it with every child with no exceptions. You must be obedient to this. When you get to the edge of the road, you stop. Look both ways. Now, why are we so strict about this command? Is it because we're fascists? Well, some would say we are. (laughs) You know why. In fact, if I could paraphrase the language of Genesis chapter 2, you must not run across the road without stopping and looking both ways, or you will certainly die. And young children need constant reminders of the command. It's not like you could say it once and then they'll remember. For the first few years, you say it constantly. Constant reminders. Now just put yourself in the, sh- in the shoes, the small shoes, of a four-year-old. You're four years old. Remember when you were four? You're on the way to the park. It's so exciting. It's like being set free. You get to play on the swings and go in the sandpit and be terrified by dogs. You can't wait to get there. Every fiber in your being is bursting to get. You don't want to walk. You want to run to the park. So you're running along. But every blooming road, your parents make you stop, look, and listen. The command is there. What does the command look like from the perspective of a four-year-old? It looks like an unnecessary restriction. They've never been hit by a car, have they? So it's not going to happen. But adults know better. And so the command is given in the context of relationship. And obedience is required. Notice that I said in the context of of relationship. This isn't a distant, kind of impersonal, cold command. It is warmly given, it is personally expressed, and it comes out of a heart of love. And the command itself tells you something about your relationship to the children. It shows you love them. Now, I've spent quite a lot of time on this example today because in our text, we come to the subject of temptation. In our text, we have a command, first command given by the living God, the creator, to the first human beings. And God expects total obedience to this. And his command is given with provision and a warning. The provision is, I've given you every tree in the garden to eat. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the warning, when you eat it, you will certainly die. Now, many people think of the Bible as sort of basically a set of rules and restrictions, regulations. They conceive of God as the sort of cosmic killjoy. To them, the idea of God setting boundaries on the way we live is is essentially restrictive. They think of freedom as the ability to define our own boundaries and to determine what is good and evil ourselves without input from God. Thank you very much. But Genesis, here the foundational book of the Bible, presents a different picture. It's already painted a picture of God as the loving creator. He's made a universe full of wonders. He's made a a wonderful world uh, for humanity to dwell in. He's, He's given incredible provision for them. He's generous. He's created human beings in his image, which means he's given them a unique privilege to run the world and rule the world Uh, like he does, but to do it under his authority. And he's endowed us, human beings, with the qualities we need to rule the world. We're rational. We're relational. Now, we've thought about that. We also thought in the previous weeks about the nature of our meaningful activity. God gives us work to do. Work is given as part of our created nature. We're supposed to fill the earth 
to populate it, to manage it, to develop it, to work and protect it. We've also thought about another provision that God has made, which is community. Human beings are not made for isolation. We're not islands. We're made to be community. And Genesis portrays marriage as a fundamental community, a good gift from God, a union, one flesh relationship characterized by dependence on one another, devotion, delight, and a kind of dance. So, Genesis 1 and 2, the first two chapters of the Bible, have depicted human life as it was meant to be. But you know that we don't live in a world that's quite like that, do we? We live in a broken world which has got much darkness and evil in it, mixed in with beauty and light. What went wrong? Perhaps you've asked that question if you've encountered death or tragedy or evil. Deep down inside, you felt life shouldn't be like this. Maybe you've been to a funeral and you were thought uh, during that, the service or, or at the graveside, life shouldn't be like this. Maybe you've seen a marriage breakdown or a family falling apart and you thought life shouldn't be like this. Maybe you've watched the news and seen the horrific things that happen in the world and you thought life shouldn't be like this. Now I hope you know what I'm talking about. I hope you felt that and that you still do and that you haven't become cynical and just given up. Genesis roots us down deep in God's reality and it tells us the truth about God, about the universe and about ourselves. And in today's reading, we see the Bible's explanation of what went wrong, why life isn't as it should be. This is why we're right to feel that. Genesis chapter 3 gives us the diagnosis of the problem. It gives us a prognosis of where disobeying God is going to lead to. But it also, at the end of the chapter, we'll come to in a week or two, gives us hope of a cure. So diagnosis, prognosis, and cure. Three points today about temptation. The character of temptation. The core of temptation. And the conqueror of temptation. The character, core, and conqueror. By the way, these points get shorter as they go on, Casey start to worry. After this sermon, we're going to sing again, and uh, then we're going to actually have a second kind of a sermon, which is something called the Lord's Supper. We've got um, juice over here, uh, which represents wine, and we've got some bread. And that's a way, a visual way of remembering the death of Jesus Christ for us, his body and blood, his body broken, his blood shed. So we'll be leading into that, and I want to preach towards that as we think about temptation. First of all, it's character. The character of temptation. Now look back in our text. Would you open it if you've closed your Bible to chapter 2 again. Chapter 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now this is quite a setting. This is quite a starter home. You know, you know the sort of starter home most people work, end up with? A one bedroom flat by the motorway. You know. This is Adam and Eve get moved in to the Garden of Eden. So the context of this story is paradise. The grass really isn't greener on the other side of the fence. It's very green in there. And at this point, the story, which has been painted on this massive canvas, stars and sun and moon being created, now it slows right down to this very, very slow pace. It's like it almost goes into slow-mo. And every word and every detail counts from here on. 
Look at what it says in verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Now that is generous provision, isn't it? Although perhaps the word generous doesn't do it justice. Any tree in the garden that God has planted, what trees they must have been. Out of his own great creative heart, God has made delicious food, beautiful trees to look at and taste, more than they could have even dreamed of. And so when he says you are free to eat, this is freedom indeed. But it is not uh, freedom to do everything you like, it is boundaries freedom. It's like the freedom of the bird flying in the air, catching the currents and soaring. It's like the freedom of the fish catching the, the water currents and swimming, gliding through. The bird and the fish are free to thrive and to soar in their element. But if they transgress their boundaries, their freedom turns to death. Look at the fish, flipped out of the water on the bank, can't get back in, gasping and dying. Look at the bird, accidentally gone into the water, its feathers dampened, it can't fly anymore, drowning. There's boundaries to this freedom for the bird, the fish, and also for humanity. Because in verse 17 it says this, but... You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now, what is going on here? God has put a boundary in around this tree. By the way, I believe that there are elements of the first three chapters of the Bible that are symbolic. And there are elements that ought to be read literally. And I'm not going to discuss now which bits I think are symbolic and which bits I think are literal. I say this merely to point out that we're going to have a difference of opinions in the room on that question. We shouldn't divide over it. We need to focus on what the text is actually trying to teach us, not on our own questions about it. But if you want to ask me questions, very happy to talk longer about that. What is going on about this tree, this boundary? Now, many people have assumed that the tree represents enlightenment. Hence its name, the knowledge of good and evil. Knowledge. So they assume that Eating the tree will give you knowledge of good and evil. And therefore, they think that God is putting a tempting, forbidden fruit just within reach. Now, there are elements of truth to that. Firstly, the presence of the tree and the command mean that Adam and Eve have a choice to make. This is a test of their obedience. It's a test. It's like they're on probation. Will they trust God? If they trust that he is good... And loving, they will obey him. But will they? Also, I think it is correct to see that eating from the tree will change things. It will have a catastrophic impact on their relationship with God. And therefore, the whole world will suffer as a result. Because God is the source of life. And if you, get, if you fall out with God, if you transgress against God, if God punishes you, if you come under his judgment, then you go away from life into the realm of death. So there will be consequences. This tree isn't a fake test. But is it correct to think that the tree gives you wisdom? That somehow by eating it, you're going to get wise. That's what the serpent claims. But is he right? Now, a clue to the answer to that question is given us in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is a kind of writing called wisdom literature. It tells you how to live a wise life. And Proverbs makes this great claim about wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom 
and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. So how can we be wise? By fearing the Lord. And that fear means to hold God in deep respect and awe. And trust that God knows best for our lives. In other words, knowing that God knows better than me and that he has my best interests at heart. That's what fearing the Lord means. And so when God commands something, his command must be good, wise and true, whether I understand it or not. Now come back to the tree. Why is it called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Because of this. You become wise by not eating it. If you've zoned out, please come back. You become wise by not eating it. By not eating from the tree, they will grow in knowledge because keeping the command of God is the path of wisdom. With me? Kind of unusual logic. Back to my opening illustration. Does a child need to get hit by a car at 40 miles an hour in order to know that the wise choice is to stop, look, and listen? No, you can learn wisdom by listening to your parents' voice without needing to get run over. Now, the character of temptation here is revealed in that it misrepresents and it manipulates. And this, I think, is where it's going to start to connect with our lives because we all face temptations every day and they always come in this kind of guise, misrepresentation of what God requires and manipulation of our hearts. Look at the misrepresentation. The serpent comes in chapter 3, verse 1, and he says to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Notice what's going on here. It's in the form of a question. Now, if this snake had come up with a flat denial of what God had said, I think that the woman's guard would have gone up immediately. He's very subtle. He appears to engage in dialogue with a question. He's pretending to be innocent. Oh, I'm not sure what I heard. Did God really say that you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? But notice how he's emphasizing the restriction. We know that there's only one forbidden tree, and there's hundreds of other trees. But here the serpent magnifies the restriction, and he blows it out of all proportion. Suddenly, all the woman's thinking about is what she can't have, not about all the things she's already got. And notice her response. She's kind of on the back foot here. This is a bit weird. Talking snake. What? <laughs> and she responds. And the way she responds shows that her thinking has already begin, begun to be distorted. You know how language shapes our perception of reality. It's a bit of a cliche, but Eskimos apparently really do have a lot of words for snow. At least 50 words for snow. A kilocock means softly falling snow. Piegnatok means the snow that is good for driving a sled on. That's just two of them. I haven't got the whole list. You'll be glad to hear. It's like the number of words that Mancunians have for rain. <laughs> at the last count, at least 180 words for rain. Words have got the power to shape your perception. It's not just rain out there. It's drizzle. <laughs> Once you know 50 words for snow, you can distinguish between different kinds. Now, the language here starts to shape 
perception of reality. Look at how she replies. We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. Notice what's going on here? Downplaying the provision. It was any tree in the garden. Now it's, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. And then in chapter, verse 3, uh, God says, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Well, hold on a minute. That's not what it was called. It was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Suddenly we're talking about it as the, the one in the middle. So it's been renamed based on its location, which makes God's command look a little bit arbitrary. What, just the one in the middle? And finally, she, she adds something into the mix. You must not touch it or you will die. You must not touch it. It didn't say that back in chapter 2. Where did that come from? Suddenly now God's been portrayed as more harsh and severe than he really was. Now he appears to have created a toxic tree that you, could kill you if you just touched it. You know, Adam's wandering around the garden one day playing hide and seek with Eve. Woo! Oh! <laughs> you touched the tree! shouldn't have touched it. You see how this misrepresentation of God is working here? It is a masterful study in character assassination. Quoted out of context, misquoted, the dark arts of spin have been applied. A shadow has now fallen across the garden. What if God is a bad guy after all? What if he's really mean? Why did he, has he really provided for us all that we need? misrepresentation, and then manipulation, because, of course, all of this is intentional. The serpent, who uh, the rest of the Bible describes as a spiritual being, we think of it, we call Satan, the deceiver, the accuser. This serpent has now manipulated her into doubting God's word. And now he moves in for the kill. Verse 4, you will not certainly die. It's a very bold refusal. I think if he'd started out with this, the woman's guard would have gone up, but he's been softening her up to this point. And so now he's succeeded in introducing enough doubt, and so he makes a glittering offer. Here it is in verse 5. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. Wow, what would that be like? And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, what's tempting about this offer? It's an offer of being on the inside track, enlightenment. Actually, more than that, it's an offer of being Godlike. You will be like God. You'll be in his place. You will know for yourself, being able to determine good and evil. You'll be independent of God. You won't have to rely on him. You won't have to trust him. You can be God. See the offer? That's the character of temptation. So what about you, friends? Do you hear God's voice in the Bible and respond at some point or other, well, it ain't necessarily so? Do you claim the prerogative of deciding what is good and what is evil in your life? Does your culture have a bigger claim on you than your God? If you are a Christian here, are there any pages in your Bible that functionally have actually fallen out because you don't follow them anymore? It's all the word of God, useful, teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. But are there a few paragraphs that have fallen out because you don't want to believe that? Now, three common areas of temptation for us are temptations in the area of sex, 
Money and power. The Bible's full of warnings about these. Sex. God creates boundaries. We talked about this last week. God creates boundaries around human sexuality, which to our culture seem very restrictive. Stop, look, listen, and think. So our culture says you are identified by your sexuality. So if you're not exercising your sexuality that you think you ought to, then you're somehow less of a human. Suddenly your identity is is wrapped up in being a sexual being rather than a human being. Your identity, they also say, is wrapped up in the, the, the sexual fulfillment that you're achieving in life, whether or not you're married or, or whether, whether, who, whoever it's with. Now, that is a redefinition of human beings. It's co- completely contrary to God's boundary freedom in the Bible. Are there any pages of your Bible that have fallen out? What about money? See, in the Bible, money is given, given to us by God. Yes, you earn it through your, your activities, but God essentially entrusts you with money as a resource to bless the world. So our money is given to us as something that we can help others, that we can give to the poor and help them, the needy, that we can give to gospel ministries. So our money is given to us not as a means of securing our livelihood and making sure we're all right, but actually as a way of... Helping others. Is it like that for you? Or is, has money become an alternative God? The place where you find your security. You look at your bank balance and if it's good, if it's going up, you actually feel safe. The third area that often we're tempted in is the area of power. We all have power uh, in, in relationships, one form or another. We have power to influence people's ideas. We have power to shape people's perceptions and reputation you may have power in the workplace over colleagues or staff who work for you we have power in the family we have power in friendships how do we use our power do we use it to serve people to bless them or do we use it to serve ourselves see the bible's way of living the kind of lifestyle that it holds out to us is actually kind of upside down from the way that we normally live we think about sex money and power as ways of serving ourselves But the Bible holds this out as the ultimate good that God himself, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, came to this world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, the way up is the way down. The way to be the top is to be the servant of everyone. It's a completely counter-cultural idea of what our lives should be all about. And the character of temptation is to think, that can't be true. I'm going to have to use what I can in life to serve myself. The Bible's teaching is a challenge to our culture and to our own hearts. And that leads me to my second point very quickly. The core of temptation. We've thought about its character, how it works out through misrepresentation, through manipulation, through doubting God's words and therefore doubting who God is and what he might really mean for me. But what is at the heart of it all? What's the essence of temptation? The crux. It's this, I think. Does God really love me? And therefore, can I trust him? Does God really love me and can I trust him you see if God really loves me and I can trust him then I will obey his commands assuming that they're for my good even if I don't understand them even if they are costly to keep 
So Christian friends here today, before we come to the Lord's table, is there an area of obedience in your life where you are knowingly disobeying your Lord? Just think about it for a moment. As we are here now in the presence of God, Jesus Christ is here by the presence of his Holy Spirit. Is there an area in your life where you are knowingly giving in to temptation? Knowingly disobeyed, disobeying God. An area that you need to deal with today. Deal with it now. Is there a place where you're thinking, I can't trust God with this. I better make my own rules up. character of temptation the core of temptation can I trust God does he really love me and finally the conqueror of temptation we mustn't stop in the garden of Eden because we must avoid reading the bible as if it's kind of an exemplary textbook book of moral fables telling us how we should uh, live imitating so and so if we read the Bible like that, then we'll kind of put ourselves in the place of Adam and Eve in the garden, and we'll read it as an exemplary tale. And that would leave us with this lesson today. Try harder. Don't be fooled like Adam and Eve were. But we are reading this text after Jesus Christ came. We're reading this text in the shadow of a cross. We're reading this text knowing that over there is an empty tomb. Everything has changed in human history because of Jesus. So now we read the Bible as a whole book. We read it all from page 1081 backwards, not just the first three pages. And what does the whole Bible tell us? It tells us that there is good news. There is good news. Mark chapter 1, I'm going to read from it if you want to follow with me. Mark chapter 1 depicts Jesus, interestingly, in a kind of Garden of Eden setting. It's on page 1002, if you want to look with me, in the church Bibles. Mark chapter 1, Jesus is baptized. At that time, this is verse 9, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son. Whom I love, with you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out, or drove him out, into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. And scholars have noticed that there's no wild animals in Matthew or Luke. But in Mark there are. You line these three gospels up, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you see all the differences. Why are there wild animals here, do you think? Because it's like the Garden of Eden. He's there with the wild animals. He's being tempted, relentlessly tempted. We know that Jesus fasted for those 40 days. He's, part, he's, he's taking the test. Will he trust God in the wilderness, in the hard place, when he's alone? And Jesus Christ passed the test. He identifies with us through his baptism and then as a second Adam he goes before God and trusts him all the way. 
So what if we are tempted as followers of Jesus? We don't stand alone. We don't stand alone. A second Adam to the fight and rescue has come. And as a result, the book of Hebrews says this. I'm going to read the final reading here from Hebrews chapter 4, um, page 1204. Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You see what the writer to the Hebrews does? He says, you know what? We don't, we're not coming before somebody who is unfeeling and doesn't understand our lives and the temptations that we face every day. We're coming before Jesus who was tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. And the result of that is that we approach the mighty God, the king of the universe, with confidence. Because Jesus has already won the battle for us. We're coming as dearly loved children. And we're saying, give us mercy. Give us grace to help us in our time of need to live in the way you've called us to live. So as we come to the Lord's table today, we come as broken people, failures. None of us here is great. None of us here has lived as we should have done this week. The the things we've done that we should not have done. The things we've neglected to do we should have done. But we come before a saviour who's gone before us to help us in time of need. He understands where you're coming from. He calls you to come to him. He was tempted in every way without sin. Jesus Christ has already conquered. He is able to sympathise. And you know that God really loves you. And you can trust him. Let's pray to this great, merciful God. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, Yet he did not sin. Gracious Lord, give us a sight of Jesus today that will inspire us and motivate us to live for him this week. Give us a sense in our hearts of the reality of his presence and the finality of his work, the beauty of all he is and does and how he is for us. This world is full of opposition for us. We are tempted in every way. We often feel that we are a complete disappointment to you. Yet we thank you that you look upon us as if we were as perfect as the Son of God himself. So, Lord, receive our praise, we pray, and strengthen us for the journey. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.